0: recovery elevator episode 388
1: and i really resisted recovery I, I embraced quitting drinking but i resisted recovery
0: uh like this yeah that should work mix down <laughs> yeah keep going yo yo mix down three four yo yo wiki wiki three mix down there we go seven eight Wiki Wiki Mixed Down. Guys in the house. (laughs) I love it. Wiki Wiki Mixed Down. There we go. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. We're so glad to have you. On today's show, we have Liz. She's 55, from Bend, Oregon, and at the time of the interview, has been alcohol free for five months. Nice job, Liz. And if you're wondering if this is the Liz that we mention when we talk about show notes, you'd be correct. She's a wonderful human who does a fantastic job here at Recovery Elevator. We're lucky to have her as a part of our team and I'm excited for you to hear her story. We've got a couple classes coming up here at Recovery Elevator. First, we have our Ditching the Booze Mindfulness course that's available to CAFE RE members only. It's a six week course on Tuesday nights, starting September 20th and is being led by our very own Patrick. Patrick is amazing and I look forward to joining this class. Also, we have our first alcohol-free photography course. This is a seven-week course that will be held on Saturdays starting October 1st. This class is going to be led by myself and Brian C. This is an intro level course to help you pick up the camera that's been sitting around and get you out shooting. We're going to learn basic camera settings, compositional rules, and talk about how we can use creativity and art to not only express ourselves but as a tool in our recovery. Photography has been a love of mine for many years, same with Brian, and we're excited to have the chance to share it with others and see what we can create. You can find more info about these courses in Cafe RE over at recoveryelevator.com. And a quick shout out to our chat hosts over in Cafe RE. These folks hosted over 60 chats last month. These are online meetings where people get to share how they're doing and get some support along the way. There's no way we could do it without our killer group of hosts. Thank you for your service. You guys are awesome. Before I get to the intro, let's hear from our sponsor, Exact Nature.
2: We are thrilled to partner with Exact Nature because we are committed to the same goal, to help you quit drinking. Exact Nature's safe, all-natural CBD-based products can aid your alcohol-free journey. If you struggle with sleep, cravings, mood swings, and high stress levels, learn more about how Exact Nature can help you at exactnature.com. Recovery Elevator listeners will receive 20% off their orders by using the code RE20. That's RE20 at exactnature.com.
0: Thanks, Odette, and thank you, Exact Nature. This June, I went on a class trip with my daughter out to Washington, D.C. in New York. We were out there for six days and saw a ton of stuff to include several war memorials and the 9-11 Memorial in New York. Some of the other adults on the trip know that I'm a veteran So, as we were looking at the sites, it was natural for them to ask me about my time in the military. That's not something I talk a lot about anymore. Not out of avoidance or because it bothers me, but that's just not my life today. When we got home, I had this realization that I kind of liked it. I liked the attention. It was weird and brought me back to a different stage in my life, when my identity was heavily tied to my accomplishments. When I was in active addiction, I had this resume that I presented to people. I had to let them know who I was. I needed to make sure that you thought that I was enough so that you'd accept me. I'm a veteran, and I spent this much time overseas. Here, let me tell you some stories about that. I'm a volunteer firefighter. I volunteer for search and rescue. I have this job, and I make this much money. Look at my vehicle. Look at my toys. I've done this, and this, and this. Honestly, I thought that if they could see the good things in me, maybe I could see them too. Don't get me wrong, I think it's perfectly fine to be proud of your accomplishments. When we've put in a lot of hard work, it's normal to enjoy the recognition. It motivates us and lets us know that our effort is valued. It keeps us engaged with our coworkers, our teams, and our communities. However, there was a perversion in the way that I was seeking approval. To me, who I was was equal to what I had done. There was a direct link to my self-worth and what you thought of me. This created some conflict. While on the outside and in the public eye, Chris was this guy who had done some commendable things, led a life of service, and was now successful. On the inside and behind closed doors, it was a very different story. I was trying to check these boxes of accomplishment and manipulate people's perceptions, but I was miserable. I'd get a little dopamine hit with someone's recognition, but that didn't make up for the Mr. Hyde side of me. I still knew that I was leading a double life That bright, shiny version of myself that I presented was being eaten away by my secrets. This fear started to creep in that something was going to give. So far, I've got all these people snowed, but the time is getting close where my cover will be blown. They're going to find out who I really am, and then it's all over. That was a really dark time for me. I knew it was coming, and I went back and forth between scheming up ways to keep my addiction going and trying to find a way out. There were even times when I couldn't fathom a life without alcohol, and suicidal ideation crept in. A note to our listeners here, if you're feeling this way, I want you to know that you're not alone, and there is another way. If you're having thoughts of harming yourself, please reach out. Here in the U.S., the National Suicide Hotline is 988. Help is available. Please speak with someone today. So what did this mean for me? Life caught up to me, and circumstances finally got me to a place where I was done. I was ready for something else. I'm grateful that the tipping point pushed me into recovery, and not another way. But once again, my identity became skewed. For the first time, I was actually looking at what I had done while actively drinking. This was important. It's something that I had to do to start healing, but I was now identifying with all those bad things. I had stopped the harmful behavior but I thought I was an awful person because of what I had done. Anything that happened to me now, I must deserve. Through treatment, counseling, and working with recovery and spiritual mentors, I was able to balance out those feelings. Yes, I had done a lot of bad stuff. Yes, I had to be the one to clean it up. But I was not those things. I didn't have to identify myself with the actions of my past. That's what I did, not who I am. I found a new identity in recovery, one that is so much more than myself. For me, that's source, the greater good. I've come to realize that I'm merely a drop in the bucket, but that doesn't mean I'm nothing. We're all connected by experience and shared space, so I'm also a part of everything. When I'm looking for that approval, the pat on the back, the attaboy, my goal is no longer to prop myself up, but to see how I can be a part of something bigger. Even the little things matter and I can have a hand in that. If a coworker is having a rough day, I can be there for them. In traffic, I can let someone in. I can smile and be kind to someone in the store. I can show God's love, patience, compassion, and kindness to the people in my life. And there's this ripple effect when I do that. When we're able to surrender and become a willing participant in something bigger than ourselves, there's no telling the impact that can have on the world. And when our identity is about something more than us, We can find peace. Life can get really simple when I'm not worried about propelling myself forward by trying to control others, and I'm able to focus on the next right thing. When we give ourselves to others, we can uncover happiness in our own lives. So back to the beginning of the story. Was it okay for me to enjoy the attention while basking in the glory of my past? I think so. I had a chance to do some unique things. I'm grateful, though, for the awareness that I have now, to not let it get out of hand. I'm glad that I recognize it and that I didn't feel the compulsion to try to prove myself. I could just let it be what it was. What do you think, Recovery Elevator? Where do you find your identity? Has it changed over the course of your life? Does it bring you peace? If you feel like you need to make a shift, how can you do that without shame? Let us know by dropping us a note on our Facebook or Instagram, or shoot me an email at Chris, that's K-R-I-S, at recoveryelevator.com. Before we hear from Liz, let's hear about a better way to get help from BetterHelp.
2: Life can be overwhelming, and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Some symptoms of burnout can include lack of motivation, fatigue, irritability, and more. For me, recovery takes a lot of work, and when I try to do too much at once while also trying to just live my life, I step into the zone of burnout. When we get sober, we want to change many things about our lives, and that's inspiring. However, remember that slow and steady wins the race. If we come out of the gates too intensely, we may burn out. BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life and how you can best navigate it. My therapist has been instrumental in reminding me that I can do it all but I can't do it all at the same time. Having her perspective has allowed me to be more accountable to myself. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash elevator. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash elevator.
0: Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Liz. Liz, how the heck are you?
1: I am great, Chris. How are you?
0: I'm doing really well. I'm excited, 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 and just happy to see your face and to have you here. We've talked about this for a while. We have. Uh, audience, whenever you hear Paul or me or, or anybody on the show do uh, a throw like, You can find this link in the show notes. Thanks, Liz, for helping us out. Like, this is Liz. So we're really, really just ecstatic to have you here. So thank you for coming on. Sure. Uh, Liz, can you give listeners an idea of how long you've been sober?
1: Yes, I have been sober for five months. So this is the most consecutive sobriety I've had uh, ever.
0: Five months is awesome. How are you feeling?
1: I feel very good. That's good. Trying to absorb every moment and remind myself that it feels good.
0: (laughs) I love that. Take it in. Yes. Um, Before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, uh, family, pets, things like that, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I am from the San Francisco Bay Area, but I live in Bend, Oregon. I am divorced. I have two dogs, Bandit and Murphy, who often show up for RE chats, which is kind of fun. Moved to Central Oregon about seven years ago, absolutely love it here. I work in the insurance side of healthcare. I'm currently working for a healthcare startup. And for fun, I still, even sober, like to entertain. Uh, I love cooking, gardening, hiking. Biking, travel—I travel a lot. Music, you name it, and uh, I'm constantly trying to find new things that um, are fun. Particularly in sobriety, because it's a—it's a different game.
0: That's awesome. I um, love—I love seeing pictures and updates of your dogs. Whenever um, when you first got Murphy, I would show my family. Like, oh, look at Liz's puppy! Dad, I need to learn lessons and stop doing that because we need another
1: dog. (laughs) yeah murphy just ate the drip system yesterday you don't need another dog
0: (laughs) like and as you mentioned your dog's mine started barking so it's like no one's good zeke's is fine that's awesome and i love um i love hearing you talk about like still being able to entertain and just it's something that i like is hearing people still be able to do the things that they like to do in recovery I, i think for a lot of us we we feel like it's a loss, like we're like we're losing so much in there. I mean, maybe there's some truth to that, but to be able to still do the things that we love. And-
1: yeah. And you have to figure out how to do it di- differently. Like during COVID, I actually hosted happy hours with my neighbors because I have a decent sized backyard and we called it BYOE, which is bring your own everything. And just because at my house, they could spread out in the backyard and it worked out really well because they bring they, they drank, they'd bring their booze and they would take it with them. And, uh, everybody knows I don't drink and, and they're cool about it. And it's been nice to kind of create some new traditions and to get comfortable with people knowing that I don't drink and, you know, with my neighbors, they don't need to know my whole story. Some, some do, but it's, it's just nice to kind of create some new traditions.
0: I like that, Liz. All right. Well, uh, what are you saying? Let's let's dig into this. Let's do what we came here to do. Why don't you uh tell us a little bit about your relationship with alcohol? How it started, how it progressed, uh how you felt along the way? And uh yeah, let's just, let's just start talking.
1: All right, sounds good. Well, um I I've, I've heard your story several times and you you've heard, you know, sound bites of mine and we've got some similarities in a lot of different ways. Um I grew up in an alcoholic family. Both of my parents were um, active drinkers, you know, from my very early childhood. My mom went into rehab when I was 16 and had over, I think achieved well over 30 years of sobriety, which is pretty impressive. Um, And my dad was also a very heavy drinker and also took drugs. He was a physician and this is in the, you know, kind of late sixties, early seventies, took uppers and downers. And ended up in a, in a mental hospital at the time in Napa, Napa state hospital, there's jokes about it. So there was a lot of drama and trauma in my house growing up. I'm an oldest child. I'm the oldest of three and alcohol was the norm. Alcohol and cigarettes were the norm back in the late sixties, early seventies. My parents loved to entertain and drink and, you know, I have an Irish Catholic family and, uh, you know, we just grew up with, you know, high balls, you know, which is basically whiskey and seven up and we would get sips as kids. And it was very, very much part of our life. There's a picture of my brother and sister and I on a new year's Eve with champagne glasses and it was champagne. It was an apple juice or cider. And it was just a big part of, of what we did. So I I drank as a kid, um, but not to excess or with a problem, but it was just a big part of our life, um, took lots of sips um, and developed a pretty healthy fear of alcohol because of my parents drinking, probably more my mom than my dad's, but I can't deny that he had a, a significant problem as well. My mom's was really bad. It was really bad and and it created a lot of drama and trauma. So it, it, more context, my parents were divorced when I was three. And I'm the oldest of three. So my Aww. brother was two, my sister was three months and, you know, and it was largely because of my dad's drinking at the time. And my mom was pretty angry, um, to the point where she actually tried to get his medical license revoked, which was interesting for a number of different reasons, super righteous on her part and stupid given that given that he was the financial support for her children, but,
0: uh,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, it was interesting. And I was the monkey in the middle of their divorce. Um, I, I will never understand to this day how they got together because I didn't see the attraction or it never saw like love between them. But I was the I was the monkey in the middle of their divorce. So if he was pissed at her, I would hear about it if she was pissed at him and I got to be the you know little adult and I was the little adult with my brother and sister. You know, some some people would say I raised them and I absolutely didn't. I'm only two, I'm only 13 months older than my brother. So um, I didn't have the skills or whatever, but I was very much a little mother and did what I could to protect and shelter them from what was going on. Um, So this is a kid with, you know, knowing that there was what was going on wasn't great, um, but also not necessarily having the skills to deal with it. I was very much my mom's PR agent, so I my job was to make sure everybody thought everything was fine, which means I learned to lie really early, which is something I'm not proud of, but I'm learning to have compassion for myself on it. I, I learned to people please, um, and again, just make everything look okay, because... There was a lot of stress around my mom's drinking. There was a lot of tension between my parents because of her drinking. It became custody issues many times. And my job was just make it look good. It's amazing the things I um, got away with. I actually attended parent-teacher conferences for my brother because my mom was so out of it, she couldn't. And the teachers would allow that to happen. Wow. Why? don't know, crazy, right? Like the school could have stepped in and said, hmm, something's not going well here, but Catholic school system. And uh, my mom had, you know, cousins who were nuns. So they uh, they they kind of covered all that. Um, I used to buy wine for my mom, um, which again is amazing that as a underaged, way underage person, I would go to the grocery store and buy those big jugs of Gallo wine because that was what she was into at the time. And I would put them in my I had baskets in my the back of my bike and I, I had a paper out, so I'd put the groceries in the front and back of my paper out bag and I would bring the wine home. and she drank. And she was a very troubled drinker, um, very angry. Uh, we got the both my brother and I I think took the brunt of her the brunt of it, which is not to say my sister didn't take a lot because she took a ton. but it was I wish you were never born. I wish you were dead you're this, you're that. And in the evenings, you know, we would wait and she'd start in my room with her screaming fits. And then she'd go to my brother and have her screaming fits. And here's how terrible we are. And my brother and I would work really hard to make sure she didn't ever get to my sister's room. We tried to let her spin out on us before she crashed and fell asleep. Um, I drove illegally. Um, I drove illegally in another country, in Canada, in a motorhome because she was too drunk to drive. Um, I drove through snowstorms without a driver's license at, you know, probably 14, 15 years old. Uh, I did a lot of things that kids shouldn't be expected to do. And it gave me a lot of skills to be a very good crisis manager as an adult, an incredibly hard worker. And it's taken me until my 50s to realize that there's a lot of skills I don't have. And uh, I'm working on them now.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff that we develop as we're going through childhood trauma or experiences with you know whatever you want to call them just that's survival in the moment and we're maybe not focused on on the long picture like how to be a normal human because it's like this is all that we know this is this is what our experience is and it's like how can I get through this like if I know that I know that she's going to be coming after us tonight. Like, what do what do I do? How can I mitigate this, or or how do I brace myself to deal with it? And then, you know, you had mentioned the, you know, like the lying and and learning how to lie. And I'm glad that you said that you're like working to reconcile that with yourself because I think it's, I think it's important that when we when we look at these things that we did or or had to do in our past, that we give ourselves some grace because one, we're you're a kid you're for your freaking kid and you're just trying to survive and that that, and that's it and it and it took what it took and and i i think if we can realize okay this is what i had to do to survive and show ourselves some compassion if if that's carried with us if that's something that i'm still doing today like i can look at it all right this doesn't serve me the way that it once did and i need to all right what can i do how can i start to move away from this or or into something more healthy?
1: Yeah and and Chris you know even the lying like from something is basic to I mean there's you know kids lie about all kinds of things but from I would say the most fundamental one and I still remember my dad asking this honey are you okay and I would say yes and I wasn't and because I knew what would happen which was he would get on my mom and then there would be a fight and you couldn't do that but I also didn't know how to say I'm not okay I'm scared <laughs> this isn't okay like you know She's drinking so much that she passes out or she cries and says, she's a terrible mother and I have to make it better. I have to call work and make excuses for why she's not coming in. I, I, I learned, to, I just learned to lie. And and now it's even learning to say, Hey, I'm not okay. And not pretend all the time. So.
0: Yeah. That's, I think, I don't know if there is, I don't know if there is a normal childhood, but yeah. like even people with like quote unquote normal childhoods like that, like how to ask for help. I don't I don't know. like I think society is uncomfortable with people when they're uncomfortable. and I know if if my kids I try to I do my best to like give them space to not be okay. but it's like you know if somebody's upset, it's there's that inclination to be like, oh no, it's fine, everything's fine. everything's fine. like you're gonna be okay and like try to minimize what they're going through to so that so that I can't be bothered with their emotions and and I'm grateful to be aware of that, but it's,
1: yeah. Yeah. And I got a lot out of it too. I mean, at some point it became an identity thing for me, which is I can handle anything. You know, I had broad shoulders, you know, there was nothing that could bring me down. I could handle anything. And, and, you know, it still plays out today. People will assign things to me, whether it's, you know, at work or with friends that, oh, she can handle it. She can do anything. And it's because I, I kind of assumed that identity which means I also never, ever learn boundaries, um, which is something I'm I'm just scratching the surface of today. Yeah,
0: that's fun work, too. And I, I just, <laughs> yeah. I got to okay. believe. <laughs> <laughs> I got to believe, you know, and you said it, there's not a huge gap between you and your brother, but there's, you know, being the oldest. There's, you know, whether it's society or yourself, there's kind of that imposed burden of responsibility to uh, I think the oldest child, it's absolutely like you kind of got to take care of things. So let's, I want to keep going forward. But before we, all right, let me, I'm going to ask one question, then we'll go forward from there. You had mentioned that okay. at 16, that your mom had sobered up or ha- had gone to rehab. And then you said she had like 30 years. Um, mm-hmm. I'm
1: yeah. Just probably, I, more than that. just can't remember how much time, but yeah.
0: I'm just curious as to like during that time, was there any, was that, recovery or, or sobering up or like what, whatever you want to call it was that what what impact did that have on you was that something you guys talked about was it just something that she did and it wasn't talked about
1: we definitely talked about it I remember the night it was um, January 2nd and my uncle who's her um, youngest brother came down and took her in um, she went to a, a, a rehab unit you know near home um, and it was 30 days and there, a couple things happened. And um, there was definitely a family program as part of it. So we did visit her occasionally, but she didn't want my grandparents to know. So it was the secret we had to keep. And the three of us stayed alone in the house, which was fine. I mean, we, you know, it wasn't all that much different than from what we usually did, yeah. but it meant I was also lying to my friends. I was lying to my grandparents. Um, and at one point my sister had said something to a girlfriend of hers who told whose mom told the principal, who called my principal, who's like, well, what's going on? You know, and it just, it was interesting. And I will tell you that, you know, she was fortunate and that it, you know, became the time that she got to her, you know, long-term sobriety, which is great, but it got way worse um, when she got home because, you know, I was 16 and a teenager and was used to running the show from, you know, I used to pay the bills. I used to do you know, I cooked, I grocery shopped <laughs> wow. and all of a sudden she wanted to be a mom, which, you know, made sense, but boy, did we butt heads. And, uh, you know, so I, I moved out at 17 cause I just couldn't take it anymore and, um, never moved back, but, um, I'm happy for her that she found recovery. And I did not learn to have compassion for her probably until the last year plus, because I was so angry with her for so long. And, she knew I was in recovery. We talked about it. And, and she said to me, you know, she was with me through some of my relapses and she just said, you know, it took me a long time. She tried several times herself, which I didn't remember that, but she did. And it took her a long time. And and it, so I'm, I have compassion for her in a big way for the struggle that she went through, I'm so dialed into what she went through as a child with my grandparents. And I'm also dialed into, you know, how manipulative my dad could be. There was a lot of good to my dad, but he was, they had a, they had a brutal relationship.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: brutal. yeah.
0: That's something that's helped me too, is um it's not always easy. Those, any hurts that, that, that I've had with my parents, they, that like, I want to hold on to that hurt for dear life. Like, some somehow it's it it's like it justifies my bullshit is i i think that's why i why i want to want to hang on to that and it's and part of part of that like showing compassion and realizing like hey they're just a person that's living a life too like maybe it wasn't all great but it wasn't all bad like i don't know i think when i let some of that go it it some of that responsibility falls back on me, and I, I don't always like that. But
1: yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, I definitely, I mean, I hung on to it for years, and again, that became part of my identity. And then you start to realize that that's the poor me, poor me, pour me, another drink, mm-hmm. um, as they say. So, it, learning to let it go is, has been—it's been a huge battle for me, kind of more internally than anything. But, but something I feel good about finally coming to grips with because. As I learned to let go of it, it's taught me to have compassion for myself in a different way and a lot of compassion for others in a way I never had before. I was, I'm still plenty judgmental. Don't get me wrong, but I'm far less so than I used to be.
0: Uh, yeah. compassion's a huge thing. It's just, yeah, just recognizing that like we're all, everybody's got something. Well, let's, let's keep walking forward. So at 17, you move out, never look back.
1: Yeah, I moved out. I never looked back, um, left one thing out, which is my dad uh, was killed in a car accident when I was 12. So uh, he lived, he lived about three hours away from where we did. He was in Redding, California, where K-Mac lives. And uh, he was killed in a car accident. He was actually um, sitting in the, I think he was in the back seat with one of his best friends who was drinking and they had been golfing. And he was in one of those open Jeeps and it uh, didn't have a seatbelt on. And there were four guys in the Jeep and he was the only one that died because it rolled over three times and rolled over on him. Oh, no. um, I remember getting the call because I'm the one that answered the phone when the coroner's office called and I didn't know what a coroner was. I didn't I didn't associate that at the time. I thought it was I heard Shasta County and I thought, oh, it's going to be another custody issue. It was it's still the probably the hardest thing of my life because I, I had. I worship my dad. I just did. I worship my dad. He was um, incredibly dynamic, incredibly smart, outgoing and fortunately loving in a way that my mom didn't know how to be um, um, in a demonstrative way. and that's um, not saying that she didn't love us because she absolutely did but um, he he could be much more demonstrative about it and I'm grateful I had that because I think it probably carried me through some really tough times. But yeah, it, it just became really hard. And so, yeah, I moved out at 17. I immediately started working and that became my second or third addiction. I would tell you my first addiction is people pleasing. My second is food. Um, I had issues with weight from eight on and my third became work. And I became a card carrying workaholic. I started working all nighters at 17, 18 which is crazy when you think about it, but because it was something I was good at, I I needed something to be good at because I, 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 I wasn't bad academically, but I wasn't great. And mostly because I was so busy taking care of the house and, you know, the chaos of my home, I really wasn't focused on academics and I was good at work and I got a lot of recognition from it and it felt good. And so I worked and had a very nice career. And I, I would tell you drinking did not become a big issue. I drank socially. Yes. I got drunk when I was, you know, you know, in high school, once I got drunk, you know, with some friends in my twenties, um, like a handful of times, it wasn't like the, the go-to I I didn't drink every day, any of those things. I, my drinking didn't become a problem until I hit my thirties. And I would tell you the big, there were kind of two major triggers. One is I had gastric bypass surgery, so I had gastric bypass surgery. I think I was thirty, maybe thirty-one, and I lost one hundred and eighty pounds, which is, you know, a person, right? I'm I'm five yeah. seven, so that's um, that's, you know, still more than I should. Uh, one hundred and eighty pounds is more than I should weigh for my for the BMI charts. And while it was great because it probably saved my life, because you shouldn't carry that much extra weight, it was also incredibly hard because. lose that much weight that fast um people didn't recognize me and they made so many comments about my body about who i was and it and it was really hard because it became i had an identity that i was comfortable with and then i lose this weight and and people inadvertently so inadvertently tell you stuff like you know well thank god because you've always had a pretty face and if only or um you know all that bullshit and it still floors me to this day that again you know how could you get to being 180 pounds overweight and again my weight issue happened you know way before i got the surgery like no, uh, people would talk about it. Like I wasn't there. I mean, I was on every diet, you know, my mom did bring me to, I was in Weight Watchers. I was on the Scarsdale diet. I was on the diet center. I did, did all those different things, but I never dealt with the emotional issues. So after having the gastric bypass surgery, uh, you know, I, I couldn't eat anymore because I just couldn't ingest that much. Yeah. Um, but Chris, I mean, I used to sneak, ice cream like I would sneak alcohol. Like I would I would eat a half gallon of ice cream and make sure I hid the container. Yeah. Um, and and which is so nuts when you think about it. But I, I did that. And and then you know I couldn't I didn't have that escape anymore. And so then drinking became an issue. And even physiologic physiologically, when you have that surgery, it changes the way you metabolize alcohol. So even for someone else, same age, same size, same weight, i metabolized the alcohol faster. So I got drunk faster and then, you know, it was off to the races. You know, I started dating. I I met somebody, I got married. He was very much a social drinker and, and definitely had a drinking issue of his own. And it became my new identity, which was this fun girl, you know, (laughs) who has the parties and we had all the parties and. And, you know, it worked, And it and again, I I got drunk plenty of times, but it wasn't it wasn't where I got to and where I ultimately got to was a really bad place because I am a physically addicted alcoholic. I can't stop. Um, I will drink, you know, to a crazy, crazy, crazy level. And, you know, I got to the point where I was buying, you know, half gallon bottles of vodka and having multiple of them, where can I get them? And it, it got really bad, um, to the point where I would get, you know, suicidal, um, it caused issues with relationships It caused relationships with work, uh, with my health. I had fatty liver and yet kind of nobody recognized it, it was because of my drinking. They all thought it was my weight, but, <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was really bad. Um, and I knew I had a problem and it's taken me over 10 years to get to five months. It's taken me over 10 years and I've tried, I've tried a little bit of everything. I, I, and I really resisted recovery. I I embraced quitting drinking, but I resisted recovery. And now that I have some recovery, it feels great, but I, I absolutely resisted it. So
0: what, um, where do you think that resistance came from? What was, was it just, uh, social perceptions of what a person in recovery is or. Yes.
1: Or maybe- uh, yes. And, 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 you know, I got, you know, when my mom was in recovery, like every, you know, birthday and Christmas gift was one of the Hazelden books. Yeah. Um, so we had AA shoved down our throats and. I did not like alcoholics. I didn't want to be an AA. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't want to be like my mom. I didn't want any of that stuff. And I knew I had a problem. I mean that that wasn't the issue. I knew I had a problem, but I also just thought it could be fixed. I thought I thought it could be a one and done. What I have learned over time? And again, I've done everything. I mean, I did a CBT thing. I've done rehab, only but very brief stint. I've done an IOP. I uh, did the anti-grace program. I did a Craig Beck program. I did everything. Uh, I did AA for a couple of years, got fired from my sponsor for relapsing. But I finally started doing the work and doing the work in a very different level. And the, I would tell you the tipping point for me was around shame. And to give you context, I was more embarrassed about my car being seen in a parking lot of an AA meeting than I was about it being seen in a liquor store,
0: yeah.
1: right? And how dumb is that? But it's a little bit of how I was raised, you know, my at Irish Catholics, there's a lot of alcoholism in Irish Catholic families, you know, particularly Irish. My grandmother had brothers who were alcoholics that we didn't even know existed because they just didn't talk about them because there was so much shame associated with it and you know i inherited some generational shame around it um and you know there was an element of i should have known better because i knew what happened to my mom i saw what happened to her i saw you know the consequences it created for her and you know i had exposure to recovery but yeah. but i had a ton of shame about it until i started to understand that i couldn't embrace that when i needed help and i couldn't embrace that it wasn't a one and done. Yeah. Like, let me be clear. I don't got this. (laughs) Um, I know that. So, yeah. yeah.
0: I've got to believe that you mentioned that there's parallels in our story. And I think that you and I probably had similar types of feelings, even though our childhood experiences were, were different, but from, you know, everything that you've just shared from a young age, you've, You know, we, we, you know, I said it earlier, you had that burden of responsibility as things were happening in your adolescence, you know, you're paying bills, going to parent teacher conferences, you're, you know, and, you know, I'm, I can't imagine. And I just feel for 12 year old, you receiving that phone call about your father, like you're taking care of things from a very young age that just, that you have no business doing that. You, that frankly, you shouldn't have had to, but,
2: right,
0: and then being on your own at 17 so like your whole life you've taken care of shit like you've just got it done because that's what you've had to do and you know you mentioned shame there's i i gotta believe that that there's this feeling of like i in the fuck can't like i've done this and this and this like you've got a pretty solid resume of things that you've accomplished in your life i gotta be able to do this and that's like that's how i felt too it's like i've been through all these life experiences. I got to be able to do this. And the, the idea of dropping to my knees metaphorically or whatever to to say, I don't know what to do. Like I, I like, this is out of my control after exhausting everything. It's, it's hard because I, I, for me, I felt like a failure and I felt like, I felt like that said something about me, the fact that I couldn't control it or stop on my own.
1: Right. And if I could do all these other things, why can't I figure this out? Right. I mean, there's plenty of literature out there it's not you know it's not rocket science stop yeah. thinking but i I couldn't and I mean <laughs> not for lack of trying but I couldn't for a long time
0: yeah and there's there's something you know for me it's been a two-part thing like accepting that everything that I've done doesn't hasn't worked so far and who knows maybe that maybe there would have been a thing down the road I don't think so but but accepting that as the truth for me and then uh, surrender has been another part. And, you know, it's, for me, that's surrendering to something bigger than me that like I need help with this. And and that thing bigger than me, it can look like a lot of things. A a big part of that is, is my faith, but like it can also be surrendering to a group or a community or, or to peers or to fellows and finding help through them. Do you feel like that's, has been a part of, of your story as well, or?
1: Oh, it's been, it's been huge. Um, it's been huge. And, um, you know, again, I did a, for two years, I I had a sponsor, I worked the steps and I, you know, I had a decent, you know, I would, I would, I did, but I had a relapse p- pattern and it was because I hadn't surrendered. Um, it wasn't because I wasn't working the steps because I was, but it was because I hadn't surrendered. And I, I still remember, I also never had a pink cloud. I never felt good, so there wasn't that, like, oh, you got to keep doing this because this feel. I, I just didn't feel great. And one day, a, a friend of mine um, in AA was doing. Uh, she had seen a, a, a substance abuse counselor, and that person told her about Pause, um, P A W S, not Pause. The other <laughs> one. But, uh, <laughs> And, um, I Googled it and then I came across, um, the recovery elevator podcast and that's the first episode I heard was Paul's episode on pause. And,
0: um, can you, can you let listeners know? Uh, I know what you're talking about. You want to let listen in case anybody hasn't heard of that.
1: Yeah. Post acute withdrawal syndrome or symptoms as Paul likes to say. And, and I have them because and in fact, I had them pretty aggressively. And I think if I'd understood it better, I would have been able to develop a plan to mitigate them. And so I had that in a, in a big way, because again, I was also physically addicted. So it made sense. And I, when I drank, I, I mean, I, I could drink any man under the, probably even you, I could probably even drink you six <laughs> seven under the table. And uh, so that it, it takes their physical consequences for that. So it makes sense that it takes your body to recovery and recover. And thank God, like, I mean, our body, I I don't have fatty liver anymore. In fact, all of my numbers are fantastic, which is amazing, right? That you can reverse that, Yeah. but boy, I've done damage. So yeah.
0: Yeah. It's our bodies are amazing, right? That we can, Mm -hmm. if we can stop before it's, you know, that we can come back from some of the shit that we've done. Yeah. And that, that pink cloud is, you know, there's a lot of us that, do we look for it or if we get it, we latch onto it and Mm -hmm. And it's, you know what, like, I take it when it comes, like, if it ever wants to show up, I enjoy it. And if, if you haven't heard of the pink cloud listeners, it's basically, you know, like I quit drinking and like, everything is great. Like life, everything starts turning my way in life and everything, like it feels great. And there's like, not to be doom and gloom, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily last forever, but I do believe that we can get through it. We can like, once that, you know, once that sunshine and rainbows phase starts to fade away and and life happens like that's just like that's just life it happens I I believe that we can get through that can you share like some of the things that you're doing now like the last the last year or so like what have you found that has been most beneficial or, or had the most impact what things have you either started or changed
1: Yeah. So um recovery elevator is a huge part of my life. I belong to Cafe RE. I go to a lot of chats. I don't I don't necessarily get to go every day anymore because I'm working, but I go to chats. Um I have an accountability partner. I meditate every day for at least 10 minutes and sometimes more. And meditation has been huge for me for a number of reasons. One for helping with my monkey mind and for helping me to just learn to manage anxiety because I also have tremendous anxiety and depression, which is better without alcohol by a long shot, but I have it in a big way and I never learned how to manage it. So meditation helps me a ton. I have journaled a ton. I have been procrastinating on that recently, which means I have something to write about. (laughs) Uh, I I know myself. Um, I took the ditch the booze class more than once and a huge shout out for ditch the booze because it gave me something that I didn't get in AA and it gave me something I didn't get in rehab or the IOP. It gave me tools yeah. that I didn't have because I didn't understand self-care. I never, I was really good at taking care of everybody else. I never knew how to take care of myself. So I do have a playlist. I, I don't necessarily do it every day, but I do it often. And that's a couple songs that put me in a better mood. Again, I meditate. I have an accountability partner. I go to chats. I talk to people in RE. I'm not the best sharer, but I, I share frequently. Sometimes I will just turn, I will go to a chat and just lurk um, because I'm working or do something else. And it's just nice to hear my people. I've, you know, I've, as you know, I met you finally her in person at the Bozeman retreat, uh, exercise um, is really important because it makes a big difference. And I've been slacking on that in the last month. So I need to get back on that. All those things help asking for help helps and asking for help in my recovery elevator community has, or cafe re community has really made the biggest difference because I'm asking for help from people who get it and they don't judge me when I'm struggling or they don't judge me if I had to do some field research. They're just they just welcome me back in and 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 love me through it. Um which I can't tell you what that means to me. I I I am a person I think I have been lonely and isolated my whole life because being a, a young adult at you know a very early age meant that I was never one of the, one of the gang because I was taking, I was, I was a little adult with, without the skills that come with being an adult. Um, And so I've, I've been lonely my whole life and I, and I'm not right now. I'm, I, I have good people who I care about and um, that means a lot to me. And I I will give a shout out because the other big podcast that was a big one for me was um, Tom Top shared that people join recovery elevator and they don't engaged. Um, and I was that person. So I, I was, I don't know how long I was a member, but I've joined twice. I never went to chats or I went to one and was like, you know, it didn't kick off the way I thought it should be. I'm like, Oh, this is stupid. It's another thing. And I listened to Tom top say, you know, you need to post, you need to, you know, engage with people. And so I started going to chats and that's how I found my people. And I have amazing friends in in Cafe are, all over the country um, and some overseas, which is fantastic. And they get me, and they get me even when I don't get myself. And it's great because you've got people that've got years and years of recovery. I mean, we've got somebody who's got what double more than double digits, and um, and then we have people who are struggling every day to put an hour or twelve hours or twenty four hours together. And I learn from from both ends of that spectrum. Yeah. So
0: there's there's just something incredibly powerful and in it, and you I mean you and I have the same resource with uh, Cafe RE and Recovery Elevator, and there's there I mean there's other things out there, listeners. So it does like it doesn't have to be just that, but it, but it, I think the the common denominator is just finding that community, finding that that group of people that that when when they're sharing, you you can hear yourself in it, or or you can resonate with it, and it it clicks with you in it. When you share, you know, like you said that, you know, we're met with love and compassion and encouragement and patience, you know, not that, that judgment that so many of us are, you know, a lot of us are used to that from, from the outside world or from our upbringings, but there's, you know, when we can find those people, it, it just makes all the difference in the world. It becomes safe to exist. It's, it's safe to be who we are and it's safe to be in the struggle because we know it's not going to be used against us and people are just going to you know love us where we're at.
1: And it's safe to try different things and yeah. and recognize hey that didn't work. So let me try something else, you know. So it's which is great because it, you do have to find what works for you and you know thank god that we're in a, in a day and age that there are so many options out there for us.
0: Yeah, we I mean there's there's tons. There's there's so much stuff and I think the the, the barrier for entry You know if covid did anything the barrier for entry is has lowered for so many things because there's so much online availability and we can we can kind of sample this stuff from from a safe space but it's still still important to get a little uncomfortable right Mm -hmm. liz what do you think should we head into a rapid fire round
1: yeah let's go all
0: right will this be the episode where chris puts music to the rapid fire round
1: <laughs> I
0: don't know. We'll see. I <laughs> talked to Paul. All right, Liz. What was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking?
1: Uh, God, I was terrified losing my escape. Just losing the escape.
0: What is a positive that you didn't expect in your life without alcohol?
1: I'm learning more about myself than I ever have in my whole life. It's like back, peeling back the layers of an onion and i don't like all of them but uh (laughs) but um it's been fascinating it has been a fascinating journey um and i i didn't expect the self-discovery that would come with it
0: you know we we hear this onion analogy so often we're all onions (laughs) and i was talking with my daughter about this and and she's like i don't well i don't like onions and i said listen so let's talk about caramelized onions. Like, if you give it enough time, it becomes sweet. And, like, mm-hmm. as like that, I don't know, for whatever reason, that's the visualization. Whenever I hear people talk about peeling back the layers of the onion, and sometimes they're hard, it's like, let's give it time and it can become sweet. Yep. So, okay, enough about me. Uh, what is your go to alcohol free drink?
2: Um,
1: right now, it's water and iced tea. And I have many, many flavors of LaCroix.
0: I'm really glad you said it. LaCroix, if you're listening, we're ready for that sponsorship. Uh, (laughs) What is your plan in sobriety moving forward?
1: Never quit quitting. I I think I can, I can, I can dial up my recovery a little bit every day and it's not just dialing up my recovery. It's dialing up myself as a human being. What I'm starting to use the question is how do I want to show up? I want to show up better a little bit every day. And whether that's, you know, meetings or being of service. And I, I'm definitely, service is a big part of what, of my recovery, it's, but becoming a little bit better every day.
0: And what parting piece of guidance can you give our listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober?
1: I would say God put you here for a reason. This is your chance to discover who you are, uh, be authentic to yourself and why you're here. You are worth it. You make a difference. And ways you don't know, and you deserve this. That's
0: beautiful. Uh, and last but certainly not least, can you <laughs> give listeners your favorite? You might need to ditch the booze if line.
1: Mine is embarrassing, but um I I went to detox once, um, and I drank so much ahead of time. I took a cab to detox. And I fell in the parking lot and had to be admitted to the ER before I literally could, you know, I couldn't walk across the street to rehab. I think I blew a 0.43, which is almost. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So when, when you fall in the parking lot going to uh, detox because you've had so much to drink it's 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 time to realize you gotta ditch the booze. <laughs>
0: make that quick er detour
1: yeah <laughs> oh my
0: gosh and that baq that's you're pickled liz
1: i was more than pickled yep
0: yeah oh man liz thank you so much for coming on i just i love you i love you a whole bunch
1: i love you too and thanks for doing this i um i have put it off for a long time and uh Um, I'm not here because I want to tell my story. I'm here because somebody will find a similarity and, and we have to break the stigma because it was my shame that kept me in, you know, on the bottle for a long time. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. It just, isn't I'm human.
0: Amen to that. Speaking out, speaking out, there's help out there. There's people out there. Um, you're not, you're not in this alone. Uh, if you're listening in any of this sounds like anything you're going through or have gone through, um, hit us up. We're here. You're, you are not alone. We're all in this together and and we want to, we want to try to help out. So uh, thank you, sister. I appreciate you.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Recovery elevator. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Liz, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. And one more huge shout out to Liz for the work she does here at RE, not just in a formal capacity, but as a community member and as a friend as well. Liz is a great example of the beautiful people you can find in the recovery world. Like so many others, she's taking the challenges that life has presented her and is turning them around to serve the greater good. Listeners, that's what it's all about, finding ways to move forward with grace, love, and encouragement, learning to love yourself and sharing that love with others. If you feel like you're stuck in your story or don't think you'll be able to move past the troubles you're facing, you're not alone. We've all been there. If you're here right now, take this as a sign that it's your time to move. Figure out what the next step is and take it. Keep it simple and focus on the next right thing. Let someone you can trust know what you're doing. You can do this. We're here for you. There's a whole world of people in recovery ready to support you. Recovery Elevator, you're the only one that can do it, but you don't have to do it alone. I love you guys.